Our guest says that she was a shy child who grew up preferring books to people, and that might still be the case. She told me downstairs she will not like that I am breaking her confidence, but she reads 300 books a year. Right. I thought I was special. I'm nothing compared to what she reads. She also sounds like she was a promiscuous reader in the best sense of the word as a child, and that that curiosity continues to animate her writing. Lauren Groff is the author of Arcadia and Fates and Furies, among other books. Boy, I hope you read that one. Her wonderful new novel is titled Matrix. Please give her the warmest of welcomes to the Fitzgerald Theater. (laughs) Is it all right that I told the tale of 300 books a year? Absolutely not. No? All right. (laughs) See, what we say in the green room does not stay in the green room. I, should, I need a sign down there for that. Um, maybe promiscuous isn't the word you want to be associated with in any kind of context, but it sounds like you have always had a kind of restless and curious mind for reading. So I would, I'd love to know about the moments as a as a kid, when you realize that books open the world, you could read anything, you could be anyone, you could step into any character's footsteps and live that kind of life. Do you yeah. remember? There, there were a number of them, for sure. Right? I, um, I used to go to the library sale in Cooperstown, New York, which is where I'm from, and just load up my frequent flyer with all of the dog-eared <laughs> and sort of smelly, silver-fished books, um, and just bring them home. And a lot of it was aspirational reading. I mean, I think uh, no eight-year-old is going to actually really understand War and Peace. Um, <laughs> that was ending up in the freak in the little was, flyer, yeah. red flyer. Yes, it oh was. Uh, but I read everything. I really did. I read everything off the shelves. I read Nancy Drew. I read Edith Han- Hamilton's uh, Greek mythologies. That really that sank in deep. Um, I read Clan of the Cave Bear by accident. Oh, wow. Wow. By accident. Yeah. I was really young. I wasn't prepared. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, Yeah. Everything. Everything. It was the way that I had of engaging with the world while also at the same time hiding from the world. Hiding yeah. from the world. Yes. How? Why? Oh, well, my, I have a very loud older brother, and I just wanted to hide from him. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're reading, people don't make you do chores, right? They're very proud of you. So it was great. Look at her. She's reading in the corner. <laughs> oh. You alone. must have also, you know, some, some librarians, I, I had an experience like this too in a very small town library as a kid where the librarian said to my mother, She's reading beyond her age, and she really shouldn't be letting her do that. And my mother was like, let her read whatever she wants. And oh, it yeah. sounds like you had a similar deal. Yeah, my dad accidentally bought me the next few books after Clan of the Cave Bear, too. Really? <laughs> Those are really sketchy. Yeah. No, yeah, no, my parents, any book that I wanted, um, you know, I, after 11, I had to buy them myself, but they just let me buy whatever I wanted. Yeah. Did you choose, I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been reading some interesting essays on this, were you choosing books that were consciously, uh, you know, this kind of fits who I think I am as a girl, 
you knew where I was going with this. Yeah, not as a girl, though. I think I, I really had no perception that I was necessarily a girl up until the point when I started playing sports. Uh, to, you know, I knew I knew I was, obviously, <laughs> but I just never, I only wore shorts, right? I was a tomboy. I was very athletic. I just sort of did my thing and read my books, um, tried to keep my brother from beating up on me. And then suddenly, you know, one year I accidentally re- I accidentally read Lolita far too young. Oh my god. And that was actually the book that was the the seed of sexuality, right? I I read that and I looked around and I thought, "Oh my gosh, every girl my age is I guess sexual?" Yeah. Um, ugh, right? And, and How old were you? I was before 13. Oh my it gosh. Was, yeah. Wow. And that also went deep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um I wonder if you know, we, what you think about the way we kind of instill these reading codes into boys and girls. Mm. I want to talk about your son's reading here in just a minute, mm-hmm. but there is still this perception that the way to get kids to read who might be reluctant readers are to give them books that are right for their gender. Mm. Um, have you encountered that? What do you think about it? No, I, not with my own children. I I just buy promiscuously um, as many books as possible, and I just leave them in their paths. But also, the the best thing I ever did as a parent was to just ignore them a great deal. Um, so benign neglect is the <laughs> best way to raise <laughs> to get a reader. Them to read? Yes. Why? Because they're bored. Uh, you know, I mean, if and I live in the middle of a city, so it's not like I mean they they do go out and they play with their friends, but it's Florida, so they have like a two-hour limit before they die of heat exhaustion. And so they come back in, and I don't let them have screens. Um, They have toys. They have a lot of Legos. But after that's done, they still have eight hours left in the day, and they're going to fill it with reading. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, As I said, I've been thinking about this, and I looked up this essay from Shannon Hale, who writes about um, reading uh, young kids. And she writes for the Washington Post, and... She said this, so what happens to a culture that encourages girls to read books about boys but shoos boys away from reading books about girls? What happens to a boy who's taught that he should be ashamed of reading a book about a girl? For feeling empathy for a girl, for trying to understand how she feels, for caring about her, what kind of a man does that boy grow up to be? Concur? Absolutely. Um, Yes, but I do have to say this this crop of um, children and young adult uh, writers, they're so smart about this, and they really do mess with the borders. And I think that if you just expose your kids to everything, it, it, I, don't, I don't actually think that um, those borders really exist anymore. I think that really? I think the writers are, are just breaking them down by their books. Yeah, when yeah. you say mess with the borders, what do you mean? Well, I mean, books for boys do exist. Um, books for girls apparently do exist. Yeah, but the, princesses the best, and kittens. I know. I've I, Princesses. We can get into <laughs> that. I hate that stuff. Why? Oh, come on. Oh, do tell. I, no, I mean, it's obvious. Um, no, but... If you're buying a smart book of any stripe, a smart book, a graphic novel um, for for kids or for adults, so I, I think kids can read well beyond their ages. Um, if you're buying a smart science fiction book, 
any sort of smart book and you put them in front of your children, then they're going to enjoy it. I, I think that um, like being an intentional buyer is, is very helpful. I think that um, writers um, are... are there, there are books on the side, but I think a lot of writers are writing for the entire audience. I don't think they're, they're writing The Babysitter's Club anymore. Right. Yeah. Right. What is it about the princess culture you can't stand? Oh, come on. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just want to hear you articulate <laughs> okay. it. Okay. Um, well, I mean, the princess culture is predicated on women being pretty over everything else, right? And uh, their utility is is based in um, the way that they look. Um, Cinderella looks beautiful, and then she's worthy, right? I, I, there's there's so there's nothing in that for the girl like the one that I was as a child, who was a tomboy who didn't want to wear a dress, right, who was really uncomfortable, who beat it back up on her brother, right? Um, there was just <laughs> nothing in that for, for a large portion of the, of the girls that I knew. So. And yet it's amazing how sticky that culture is. Pink is a bad color. Oh, the other, on you, it's wonderful. <laughs> you look amazing. I just don't like it myself on This is not going as I thought it would. No, you look wonderful. I just really put my foot in that. Whoops. Pink, bad. No, you look good in pink. Black, white, pretty in pink, right? You didn't like that either, I'll bet. I don't remember it. Um, I'm interested in how you... We've been talking a bit about developing feminism, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. In, in girls and then fulfilling that as young women. I wonder how you thought about this idea of power and feminism in, the mat- in Matrix compared to the way that you thought about it in Fates and Furies. Uh, obviously, mm-hmm. worlds apart, very different settings and different characters, but it strikes me that there is like this beating core, this beating heart of your interest in feminism that comes through both of those novels. Oh, for sure. I mean, in Fates and Furies, the first book, the first part of the book was in the point of view of the male character, Mm -hmm. and it was using a lot of narratives and kinds of narratives that have been seen throughout history, through the millennia of storytelling, right? So, um, there are courtly romances in there. There are um, there's the campus novel in there. There's the buildings romance. So I actually intentionally chose these these modes of storytelling that have been traditionally male um, in order to present this story. And then I tried to break them in the second half in the the woman's point of view. Um, so I mean I think the similarity is that I'm trying to do the same thing in Matrix. I'm trying to break the uh, sort of a, a masculine narrative storytelling um, mode um, but I, I'm doing it in a slightly different way which is by keeping men um, vague and sort of shadowy <laughs> figures on the corner of the vision right it's all a, a female gaze novel will you say something more about that the female gaze novel sure. and deciding I mean was that was that the conception from the beginning that men would be marginal and blurry Mm. at the edges. Uh, The day before I had my vision of this book, I was coming back from Arizona on a plane going to Boston, 
And I, was, I watched this amazing film, which I think a lot of people here have seen. It's called The Women. It's from 1940. I think it's a George Cukor film. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong about that. Um, it's so smart. It's so well-written. The only characters are women. Right? There are no men in this film whatsoever. But uh, every conversation that the women have is circling a man or multiple men. And it was so frustrating because it was like, you're 80% of the way there and you're just not quite, (laughs) you haven't hit it. Um, So the the next day I go to this lecture and I hear my friend, Dr. Katie Bogus at Notre Dame give this talk and it's the most amazing talk about um, medieval nuns and their liturgies and the way that through the liturgical books, they are able to sort of subvert a lot of the, the gender expectations of nuns at the time. I'm sitting there, and I'm like, oh. And um, it, I was like quivering with joy because here, this film, and here, this lecture, and here, this, this long-held, two decades adoration of the first female poet in French, Marie de France, they all came together and sort of exploded into a, a vision of this, this book, Matrix. It's interesting that you actually call it a vision. It was is, is that how you think of it? Legitimately a vision. And this happens, you know, I've been writing seriously for 23 years now, um, which means every single day. In, that's what serious means in my small life um, and world. Um, but I think I've only been given a story maybe two times. I mean, and this is one of those times. And it almost never happens like this. And it feels like a gift when it does. So it felt like this film kind of arrives in your, on your dashboard. And then you go to this talk. Mm-hmm. And then the pieces are starting to come together. Or is mm-hmm. it more specific of a of a vision. Well, I definitely sat in the audience and um, Marie de France definitely walked in. I mean, she definitely, like my vision of her, she, yeah, she walked in. I mean, not, so the the great, great historical writer, uh, period writer, because she also writes contemporary novels, Hilary Mantel, um, talks about how when she, she creates her characters, she has a chair here and a chair opposite, and she sits down in the chair here and she says, come, come sit with me. And Cromwell walks in and yes. begins to talk to her, right? And, and so she talks to them like that. Um, and I am, I am not Hilary Mantel, but it did happen as I was sitting there that, that as I was listening and sort of having this ecstatic, animal moments of, of just pure delight and joy, th- this character did come to me. Yeah, it, It's interesting that you've brought up Hilary Mantel um, because downstairs we were talking about Hamnet, which somebody called out that they had read, and I've just recently listened to it. Uh, this is Maggie O'Farrell's yes. novel that is doing what Hilary Mantel does in a way, too. And what you're doing here is rewriting what seems to be conventional history or conventional wisdom such as it is about about these stories again with so often men at the center of them and giving us a new way to it's not just a new way to think about these historical figures but to reorder Mm. the perception 
of these figures? You know, the, there's an incredible figure um, na- in academia named Sadia Hartman, who's mm-hmm. really extraordinary. If you're interested, I would say go look her up. Because she talks about, re- and, and hers is mostly you know, African-American black writers, black figures, but she, she t- and, and women, and she talks about coming back and, and sort of writing into the absences, into the gaps in, in certain oh, ways in order good. to illustrate um, the, the world um, in a different way and sort of give an alternate vision of, of the world as it may have been and maybe actually flesh things out a little bit better. So what were those absences that you were... I mean, there, there's probably a lot of absence because I don't know that many of us know much about Marie de France. Yeah, the the major void that I, I myself shared when I was going into this was just a very vague idea of what the 12th century was. <laughs> it was like, right? <laughs> I mean, I think we all have this feeling that it was... Lives were short and miserable and dirty and full of tooth abscesses, right? (laughs) (laughs) Just really unfortunate. Um, And they probably were. There was no antibiotics. There were no vaccines back then. There was a lot of lice, too. So much lice. Yeah. Who knows? Leprosy was a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, diseases were bad. Child, childbirth was absolutely perilous, um, horrible. Um, but at the same time, and I think that the, the sheer vision of the deficiencies in a 21st century vision of the world flattens our perception mm. of who people were at the time. And, I, and going back into the historical record, into ac- the academic texts and, and sort of some of the reimaginings of the, of the time, I started to feel um, the movements of just humanity. I, I think that um, I, I remembered that people love making jokes, terrible fart jokes, right? So in the, in the corners of medieval manuscripts, often there are these things called drolleries, which are hilarious cartoons that, that you know, monks who are angry or something um, are writing in the, in the side, and they're so funny. They're <laughs> hilarious. Um, people loved sex. Right, we're animals, um, and and remembering that that was a part of life then too. When our perception is probably that everyone is walking around like with a halo in our hands, sort of canted together in prayer position, um, not true, right? People, people are, are people, even if. The historical record generally presents the lives of kings and the lives of um, saints. Um, that's not the reality of the vast majority of people who were as complicated, as interesting, as wild as we are now. I, I'd really like you to describe the kind of feminist that Marie becomes, t- turns into, with, with, I think, not a lot of... And, and she's young, but not a lot of self-knowledge at the beginning that there is potential, that, that this lies inside of her. How do you think about it? So Marie is a character in my perception. This is all invented, by the way, because we don't know anything about the historical figure of Marie de France. We, we have suppositions. We have ideas that she could have been an abbess at the time. She could have been... Even one of the daughters of Eleanor of Aquitaine, um, we don't know. You know she was a poet, 
We right? well, we or know we, two things, okay. and the two things are the books that she left behind. She left behind a collection of lay, which are these extraordinary, just fantastical, wild, um, basically short stories in poetic form, and I love them so much. I've tried to do translations of them, and it has failed. Uh, and then she, uh, um, there are her fables too. So she wrote these fables, and. To be perfectly honest, some people think that she didn't actually write these fables, really? and other people say that there's a life of a saint that she might have written also. So we do know, at least, that she definitely wrote these lay. Um, so um, I didn't know much about her when she walked in all gawky, tall, unfortunate. The Angevin women had strange faces. Um, so she, she's an Angevin woman. Um, and... Um, so I, I really took a lot of joy in the way that I created her life was I pulled from the text that we had imagery and ideas uh, that recurred and and then built a biography on top of that. So so built sort of this, this um, her past life. And so out of this sort of invented biography through, I guess, the... the uh, um, biographical fallacy. Um, I created this this Marie figure who grew up in Le Mans um, in France, um, uh, speaking multiple different French languages of the time because it wasn't just French, right? It was, right. It was multiple different languages at the time. Learning to uh, to do what well-born women at the time did, which is run vast estates. I mean, they had to be literate in multiple languages. They had to be numerate in ways that women just weren't at the time. They had to manage humans, uh, other humans, to, to work for them to make sure that these estates didn't um, crash down when the men were off, you know, gallivanting in Jerusalem. Um, <laughs> well, on the Crusades. So... Um, but it was really exciting to think of her as this person who was given this gift of um, knowledge and understanding at a time when women just weren't given those things. And to think of her perhaps as raised by uh, a bunch of um, aunts who went on the Second Crusade uh, as a part of Eleanor Vacutin's, uh Ladies' Army, which is definitely apocryphal, um, but there is in historical record an idea that Eleanor had a bunch of ladies all dressed in silken white crusader uniforms with their red cross and their hair loose and wow. and riding down the hills on these horses <laughs> and, and with their swords drawn and I love that image so much like even though it's probably apocryphal it went in the book um, as these, these sort of virago Amazon ants um, were raising her and so out of that, that came Marie who at, at, in the beginning, when she had to go to the court of Eleanor of Aquitaine and her um, uh, legitimate brother, she's a leg- illegitimate bastard, um, she, um, Marie sort of took into herself, because she's very young at the time, the ideas of courtly love, which are in some ways profoundly feminist ideas mm-hmm. for the time, in some ways... Not at all, right? <laughs> and the narratives of courtly love sort of infused her. So as she's, she's thrown to the abbey, she sees the world framed in courtly love, ideas of courtly love. And um, so her feminism comes out of this, this tension, right? This tension between um, the, 
the way the world she wants it to be and the way that it, I guess, is under the auspices of the Catholic Church with the profound, deep hierarchies. Um, So her feminism comes out of just being trapped, to be perfectly honest, with her own beliefs in this very tight structure. I'm so glad you described it like that because I was thinking the balance here for you is to... Um, not impose your concept of feminism today, which I guess would be a natural desire to do that, but to make this seem so, I guess, organic in that world that she lived in, as restrained as it was. Yeah. At the same time, though, yeah. <laughs> this is my, um, my theory of historical fiction, if I was going to do it, was that... I needed it to vibrate between past and present, Mm. um, like a tuning fork, right? So that the past and the present were constantly speaking back and forth. So even though I'm investing Marie with the 12th century, she's also coming from the 21st because the reader knows. The reader knows that this is a new book put out by me, and I was born in 1978, and therefore I was not alive then. Um, and therefore, there's this constant reverberation happening. And, and so I had to actually bring elements of modern feminism or my belief in women um, into the 12th century where they may not have been organic. That's such a wonderful way to describe it. I've never thought of it like that. I mean, that seems where true masters of historical fiction get it right, right? That we will always, as the reader have a contemporary sensibility. But we do want to lose ourselves, we think, in the in the moment of the history. Yeah. So um (laughs) some people, like Henry James, hate historical fiction, right? I don't know if you know this, but um he he um he wrote this horrible, horrible letter to his friend Sarah Orne Jewett, um, who sent him her work of historical fiction. And Henry James, being Henry James, said it so beautifully. But basically what he said was, well, historical fiction is corrupt from the beginning, right? <laughs> Just because it's all a masquerade and it's all false. Right? You're, you're just doing artifice the entire time. And um, so it cannot possibly be a moral art form. <laughs> um, which, can you imagine getting know, this letter? I being crushed, oh, yes. Oh, like, my God. Yeah. Right? That would end oh, your writing career forever, right there. Forever, I, I know. Um, so there are people who believe that that's actually sort of some of the immorality of the form itself. But I actually believe that that's the profound morality of the form because there's no novel that has ever been written that is not historical. Mm-hmm. There is no such thing as in ahistorical fiction. They're all based in history. Even, even fictions in, uh, sort of looking into the future are fictions that are set in the time of creation and the ideas at the time of creation. I was just going to ask you, though, about, all right, something like science fiction yeah. also has kind of a historical element yeah. to it. Yeah. What about the tuning fork in a in a form like that? Well, that's beautiful, right? So the tuning fork is, is being projected. It's, a, it's an imaginary tuning fork. And there's something very um, endearing, I think, about uh, science fiction, especially science fiction that you read 80 years later, because you see the limitations of the contemporary imagination um, in the way that... Uh, 
the, the, the writer is imagining the, the world of the future. I find it so wonderful. Do and, you read and, a lot of science fiction? No. Oh. Um, what, but why? once in a while, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when, uh, when I, I lived in France for a year in between high school and college, and I was in Nantes, um, and Jules Verne is the, like, the animating force in Nantes. And so I read all of Jules Verne in French. Um, wow. And so that's, like, that's all I know, basically, about science fiction, uh, plus whatever my children force me to read um, with our book club. Yeah. Very interesting to hear you say that there really is no novel that doesn't have that element of historical fiction. But when you set out to, to write this, were you, I mean, were you consciously plunging into a, a different kind of form that you'd... I mean, that, that you were, yeah, yeah I, I'd, I'm interested in your awareness of this is something I haven't done before. This I is going to require different, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So, I ha- so my first book spanned 200 years. I've written many, many short stories that are historically based. Um, I even, um, in Arcadia, uh, at the time, I think it came out in 2012, and the, the last part of it was set in t- 2019. When there was a huge that's pandemic, right. yes. Oh my gosh, that's right. right. I forgot that. Yeah, and and like climate wow. change has really been exacerbated, and people are walking around with masks on their faces. Right? <laughs> I know. Whoops. Yeah. I think I called it into being. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. yeah. How much did you get right? A lot. All that. of it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the things that that. Marie and and the novel inspired for me was kind of this tumble down a rabbit hole into the women who were writing in medieval Europe. And there were mm-hmm. some, which is mm-hmm. really remarkable. Mm-hmm. So I was reading about Julian of Norwich. Yes, all will be well and all shall be well. And okay, what do you know about well. her? She's a mystic, right? She's a brilliant mystic. And she wrote really... I read um, her work multiple times. You did? Yes, yeah. And what did that... I mean, to to prepare for this or to to prepare for a matrix. I mean, I read all of the mystics. I love you all did. the mystics. I love them so much. Yes, yes. to what yeah. to kind of get the that facet of Marie's personality, which I I love the fact that she's not a full on mystic. Well, she maybe who knows, right? Oh. I mean, can you actually um, be sure that all of the mystics? of the past are full on mystic. What is a full <laughs> on question. mystic? Yeah, right? good I question. don't know. I do believe people like Hilde- Hildegard von Bingen, who mm-hmm. is my favorite mystic, oh. if we're going to choose a team. Um, I, you know, I believe that she not only did get her visions as a gift, but she was also incredibly savvy and canny about spinning them to create um, more power for herself and more space for herself to move in this hyper-paternalistic, oppressive society. Is this Julian or This is Hildegard. Hildegard. Okay. Yeah, I love Hildegard. Yeah. Yeah. So I interrupted you. You were saying... No. I just think that... um, I think that they were so smart and such geniuses in multiple directions that um, possibly they could have... Not intentionally used, but maybe maybe intentionally used their visions to to promote themselves, to to have power, and to maintain that power, and to protect the women under them uh, for the abbesses of them. That is great because I think we have a tendency to think there was a purity about there's a saintliness, right? A purity about a woman who has 
visions in that era. And you're saying Maybe. it could have been a power move. Well, it probably was both, right? right? And it doesn't matter if it was both. And who knows? And who will ever know? But I like... I, but, but they got so much out of it, right? right? And obviously, there were people who... Um, saw the way that Julian was accepted and brought in and, and became famous, for yeah. instance, who also did what she did because it looked good, right? Like, <laughs> like, and they're lesser mystics, but they're still, you know, possibly real. How about Christine de Pazan? Yeah. Who was quite the feminist uh, Yeah, the city of women, right? Yes. I think that's what she wrote. Yeah, um, I read that as I was actually building Arcadia. Um, uh, so it's been a very oh, long time. Oh, this has been, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this has been germinating oh, for gosh. Yeah, yeah. a long time. Yes. How typical is that? Oh, very, yes. Most of, so most of my work has um, been sitting somewhere, and this is such a silly metaphor, but it's, my head is a planet, and the ideas <laughs> are satellites sort of spinning around, but they haven't yet found the way to fruition or the way to sort of become what they need to come become. And so sometimes, you know, I will think, oh, it's the time, and I will artificially make uh, one of the satellites um, go on the page, and then it's dead. Um, and then I throw it back in, right? Is this and really how you think of this? Yeah. Yeah, like legitimately. Um, and then sometimes I won't be thinking about it and, and I'll read something or I'll experience something or, or I will be walking down the street and see something and it will fall down and sort of collide and create a story. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the way that my stories happen. And I know it's, it, it seems silly, but often a lot of my ideas are just have been spinning for a while, um, for years. It seems kind of mystical. Yeah, it does. In a way. I know. Doesn't it? I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Talking Volumes at the Fitzgerald Theater. We're here with writer Lauren Groff, and her new novel is Matrix. Yes. Would you read the first... Oh, yes. the, the, the first pages of the novel are so vivid and sensual, and this is so interesting because... The setting that we are going into is austere, and we'll talk about that. I love, I love the way Lauren was clearly thinking about the contrast of that. <laughs> so would you read the first few pages? Sure. She rides out of the forest alone, 17 years old in the cold March drizzle, Murray, who comes from France. It is 1158, and the world bears the weariness of late Lent. Soon it will be Easter, which arrives early this year. In the fields, the seeds uncurl in the dark, cold soil, ready to punch into the freer air. She sees for the first time the abbey, pale and aloof on a rise in this damp valley, the clouds drawn up from the ocean and wrung against the hills in constant rainfall. Most of the year, this place is emerald and sapphire, bursting under dampness, thick with sheep and chaffinches and newts, delicate mushrooms poking from the rich soil. But now in late winter, all is gray and full of shadows. Her old war horse glumly plods along and a merlin shivers in its wicker mew on the box mounted behind her. The wind hushes, the trees cease stirring. Murray feels that the whole countryside is watching her move through it. She is tall, 
a giantess of a maiden, and her elbows and knees stick out ungainly. The fine rain gathers until it runs in rivulets down her sealskin cloak and darkens her green headcloths to black. Her stark, angevin face holds no beauty, only canniness and passion yet unchecked. It is wet with rain, not tears. She's yet to cry for having been thrown to the dogs. Two days earlier, Queen Eleanor had appeared in the doorway of Marie's chamber, all bosom and golden hair and sable fur lining the blue robe and jewels dripping from ears and wrists in shining chaplet and perfumes strong enough to knock a soul to the ground. Her intention was always to disarm by stunning. Her ladies stood behind her, hiding their smiles. Among these traitors was Marie's own half-sister, a bastardess sibling of the crown just like Marie, the sum of errant paternal lusts. But this simpering creature, having understood the uses of popularity in the court, had blanched and run from Marie's attempts to befriend her. She would one day become a princess of the Welsh. Marie curtsies clumsily, and Eleanor glided into the room, her nostrils twitching. The queen said that she had news. Oh, what delightful news. What relief. She had just now received the papal dispensation. The poor horse had exploded its heart. It had galloped so fast to bring it here this morning that, due to her, the queen's own efforts over these months, this poor illegitimate Marie from nowhere in Le Mans had at last been made prioress of a royal abbey. Wasn't that wonderful? Now at last they knew what to do with this odd half-sister to the crown. Now they had a use for Marie at last. The queen's heavily lined eyes rested upon Marie for a moment, then moved to the high window that overlooked the gardens, where the shutters were thrust open so Marie could stand on her toes and watch people walking outside. When her mouth could move, she said thickly that she was grateful to the queen for the radiance of her attention, but oh no, she could not be a nun. She was unworthy. And besides, she had no godly vocation whatsoever in any way at all. And it was true, the religion she was raised in had always seemed vaguely foolish to her, if rich with mystery and ceremony. For why should babies be born into sin? Why should she pray to the invisible forces? Why would God be a trinity? Why should she, who felt her greatness hot in her blood, be considered lesser because the first woman was molded from a rib and ate a fruit and thus lost lazy Eden? It was senseless. Her faith had twisted very early in her childhood. It would slowly grow ever more bent into its geometry until it was its own angular, majestic thing. But at 17, in this spare chamber at the court in Westminster, she could be no equal to the elegant and story-loving queen who, though small in body, absorbed all light, all thought from Marie's head, all breath from her lungs. So I mentioned that word sensual in the, in, from those first several pages, and um, there is such a contrast through the, the lushness of your writing these... I mean, I always get this sense when I'm reading your work that the words feel good to say. You know, there's just... Yes? Yes, yeah. You think about that? I speak it out loud a you lot. You do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what are you looking for and what are you looking to hear when you're doing that? That's a good question. I think um, 
a large part of my writing process is really just remembering that I'm an animal and my characters are animals, right? And sort of grounding everything in the body, which means that not only do the words have to, to sound right for what's happening, so maybe a harsher scene would have harsher sounds, mm-hmm. but it's also remembering um, that embedded within sound and, and um, semantics and syntax, there are uh, bodily memories, right? Mm-hmm. And so sort of tactile, auditory, um, even other senses are embedded in words too. Right. And sort of and trying to, to evoke these things, not just on the surface of what the words mean, but also with those... Um, that network, that those those cobwebs underneath of almost invisible meaning, uh, that are really really necessary to evoke as well. When you say you remember that you're an animal, do you do you mean and that in an animal kind of earthy kind of way, our senses are activated, and you don't want to forget to activate our senses in these portraits that you're creating. Well, yeah. Yes, absolutely. You know, um, a character is should be a flesh and blood creation, right? And the way that the, the body reacts to anything is going to manifest in the way that the character acts mm-hmm. and thinks and becomes. And so, um, say... For instance, just as an example, there's a very tense breakup scene, and the breakup scene happens alternately on a beach at a very at a luxury resort, um, or that breakup scene happens in negative twenty degrees in St. Paul when it's like winter <laughs> and like the streets are frozen over, and one of the characters has forgotten their slippers inside the house, right? So they're going to be profoundly different scenes, right? They're, and because the characters, even if they're the same characters, are going to, to react in, in animal ways in different ways. So there's no such thing as consistency of character. Um, a character is relative, constantly relative, dependent on the way that the, the animal senses are being invoked. Mm-hmm. So the contrast between the austerity of... The setting, and you you bring us into that in the first few pages, and I think you, I got the sense you kept coming back to touch base on that, and then the lushness of Marie's observations, and then the world that she creates. I, I'd love to hear you say something about how you found the balance there, how you were thinking about it. Yeah. Um, all of my work goes through a rigorous process of failure. So, uh, <laughs> just rigorous failure over and over again. Um, what, what does that yeah. mean? Oh, oh gosh. Um, so, my propensity, we were talking about this earlier, my propensity is to control everything and to be a perfectionist and to sort of to, to make everything, lock everything down immediately, right? Because I'm very anxious. <laughs> um, but I think into my process, I have to build a great deal of uncertainty mm-hmm. and a great deal of intentional failure. So, for instance, I write everything longhand um, up until the very, very, very last draft. And I write fast drafts in the beginning because that means that I can't stop 
because I can't reread my handwriting um, because it's really horrendous. Um, and but it also means that I just keep going. You got to. You have to just keep going. You can't let my my. I can't let my personality stop me. Uh, you got to outthink your own personality sometimes. And so um, so the failure is intentional in the in the first many drafts because I am not trying to write something good. Um, I'm in fact trying to write something bad but fast and, and interesting um, only on the level of ideas, not on the level of words. And so as each draft progresses, and I throw it out completely, I start over again, I do this as many times as I need to, with this book is probably eight separate complete throughout restart um, drafts. And what that does is it does many, many interesting, fun things as long as I can mitigate the frustration. Um, but it... it um, it builds a book in a different way. It, it builds a scene um, by layering, right? Mm. Almost like a 3D printer, mm. um, as opposed to, you know, you have to live within the scene and only build it. I have a lot of friends who are the precise kind of writer who they write a sentence and it's perfect and then they move on to the next sentence and then they hand in their books and they have three things wrong. Um, and I don't envy them, but I think that's wild. <laughs> um, right? Um, but the way that, with the, with the intentional failure, the intentional coming back to some to an idea and seeing it from a different place, with um, the exigencies of the next draft and what that means, the next structure, the next um, um, change in characters, it all it just develops a bit more under the surface, I think, and and then finally the surface comes at the very end. You know, when you're describing that uncertainty, I was thinking you have. You have to have confidence in that uncertainty, which is a pretty astonishing thing. Yeah. It couldn't have been there at the beginning. Oh, God, no. No, 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 but I did know. At a cer- something ha- happened um, uh, when I first started writing that made me think, this is the thing I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And so um, no half measures, just do it as hard as you can um, until you don't get to do it anymore. Um, so even if I didn't have the necessary confidence, and I shouldn't have because my fr- my first ten years were full of wretched work, um, <laughs> I still pretended, right? I pretend, you know, it was the most important thing in my life, so I got up and treated it as if it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uncertainty is a good a good segue here because I I wanted to talk to you about Marie's faith. I found it so interesting, and mm-hmm. I really wondered how much consideration you gave to what she believed and what the reader would think she believed. Will will you talk about that? And then I have some other questions about it. Yeah, it's an arc throughout the book, right? We see her start at a place that's relatively um, secular because she wasn't really raised. I mean, she was raised going to chapel at her family's estate every single um, Sunday listening to mass and taking you know taking communion but i think that for this particular character she would rather have been out you know hunting frogs and, and swimming in the river naked right so um this was something that was almost an impediment to who she wanted to be mm-hmm. at any given time and then she was forced to take on the role of first prioress and then later abbess in this abbey and so she not only had to live within the liturgical schedule was really rigorous for Benedictine nuns at the time. I mean, they had to pray many times a day, and every aspect of life was prayer, right? So the work was prayer. Everything was prayer. Um, so she had to take in 
the the very rich and very beautiful calendars and schedules and things like that and um, the 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 way that they prayed every, at all times and I think it's slowly built into a faith um, that was probably separate from her sister's faith mm-hmm. um, but no less deep and complex and interesting. I mean what what's intriguing is you know she as we heard in that first excerpt, she finds a certain kind of foolishness and she brings, she comes into this with skepticism, Mm -hmm. a lot of good questions, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And out of that comes, I guess what I read as a more authentic faith. What, what do you Mm -hmm. think? I don't know if it's more authentic. I don't, you know, I, I would, I, it's one of those things where I don't think you can compare faith because it's so abstract, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, I think as long as um, you're committed to it, it is what it is, and it's beautiful, right? I think she slowly commits to it, to, to whatever it is that it has built in her and has become its own beautiful thing. So um, by the end of the book, she is, powerful in her weird idiosyncratic faith yeah Yeah. and why why powerful no why 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 is that where this character's belief you know tenets of belief went i think she sees god in the people around her right and perhaps God doesn't exist in the stories as received from where she heard them. But she sees these beautiful, smart, um, unusual women around her. And she can, she can see that, what the Quakers call that, um, the spark of light, right, mm-hmm. inside. I think she, she genuinely believes in the God, in the love of her sisters. Yeah. I mean, it kind of brings us back to those other medieval women who were writing... And how they allowed their faith to be perceived mm-hmm. as, you know, deep and appropriate for that time. But again, how that might have been quite useful. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah. I, I mean, I believe them very, very fully that they very much believed. And, and sort of um, a lot of the, the saints came out of fervent belief, right? Almost overwhelming passion that that did overwhelm that that did take them over um and and it's not it's not an either or mm. situation right it's an and situation and it became very helpful for that some of them to um get wealthy donors right like so <laughs> right. um so, so um i think both things can exist at the same time is there an element of you asking questions about what people believe, whether that is of religious, uh, of a religious nature. Is there an element? It seems like there is in a lot of your writing. I feel like that was present in Arcadia. Some measure of it was present in Fates and Furies. What do you, am I just making stuff up? Or? No, um, but I've never thought about it like this, so I've got to spin a little. Um, I think... Um, at the heart of all my work is um, not a dissatisfaction, but a hunger uh, for better, um, for for living better and being in a better world and creating something 
it has to be better than what we have now. <laughs> um, and that, um, I think that manifests in constantly sort of uh, um, tapping with a ball-peen hammer at what we do have and what the characters do have. There's a constant sort of oppositional force mm-hmm. against everything, the situations in which they find themselves. So um, I, I, I think... The answer to your question is yes, and the other answer to the question is I have no idea, but I feel like that's maybe the truth. Yes. I mean, yeah. I, I get the sense that there's there's idealism mm-hmm. in in many of the novels that I've read of yours, and that and this is an interesting um, this is something that's interesting to behold too as a reader, right? When that idealism starts to crack mm-hmm. and diminish. Mm-hmm. I was curious about how yeah. you think about imbuing these characters with that kind of idealism and then what it takes to chip away at that. Yeah. Um, or what is worth the left behind after idealism falls, right? Yeah, um, right. Because there is something there that is, is worthy and beautiful and noble, um, especially, I'm thinking now of Arcadia, actually, and Fates and Furies, right? What happens when all of the the illusions that we hold um, fall away? What is left? And, and is it worthy? And I think my ultimate answer is obviously yes. I, I believe very deeply that it is. But why is one of the questions that I think that I'm constantly looking at in, in my work and, and trying to get there. I'm trying to... Um, I think one would not ever sit down to write a novel unless there were shadowy places in one's own human hearts that, um, uh, as of yet, have not borne up under any kind of scrutiny. And so the the act of the novelist is to try to shine light into it, try to see what's, what's deep down in there. And I think that's one of those um, fundamental questions that probably goes down to my own personal faith and, and if, what my faith is in humanity, um, which sounds very, very large and scary. But I, I think that's what I'm doing in my work. I'm, I'm just trying to understand if we are worthy. And I think we are. I don't know. Do you have, are you comfortable with the idea of illusion or sometimes I get the sense that you have a real impatience with the idea of illusion? No, um, I don't know. That's a good question. I I think I like illusion uh, up to a certain point, but I don't like unjust illusion, or I don't like it when um, it's there for the sake of tricking. Tricking, right? I I, I like it for um, mystery. Uh, I like ambiguity sometimes. But how about about kind of um, self-preserving? Illusion. I mean, in Fates and Furies, boy, does that get stripped away mm-hmm. pretty fast in the second. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if it's so much that I don't like illusion, um, insofar as I think that uh, 
the only thing we have is attention and paying attention. And the closer attention you pay, the less illusion matters, right? I, I think if, if you are able to um, look as hard as you can at all times. Oh, there's this amazing George Eliot quote that I would massacre um, about the squirrel's heart beating and the grass growing. Um, but if you if you were to pay as close attention as possible, you get come close to the quick of life, and you come close to understanding the great mysteries uh, that there are in the world. Um, so I think illusion is really just a barrier to close attention. So I think the answer then is probably you are kind of impatient with illusion. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and that you're th- that in your in your writing, it's it seems like part of the process is yeah yeah it's yeah stripping yes. it away. I hope so. Yeah, in a necessary kind of way. Yeah. Yeah, that's very... I have to go home and actually think about that. <laughs> this is like a very, very difficult question on the spot. I have a question for you about the Brontes. Because oh, good. I read that you have read the entire Bronte canon. All of the Brontes. Yeah, no, I have. Is it Branwell? Who's the Oh yeah. Who's the guy? <laughs> the guy. Have you read his? <laughs> that, mm, Bran- <laughs> like, poor yeah. Branwell. Mm. <laughs> right. I mean, compared to his sisters, he was not. Uh, he was not the brightest, right. the best. Oh yeah, I know. They were. He was definitely the mope uh, of the family, the, wasn't he? Mm, sorry, <laughs> like you have to make that face. With, I mean, even in the in the portraits of Bromwell, he's sort of like wilting off to the yes, side. Right, yeah. right. He couldn't compete. <laughs> not at all. But they had illusions about him. I oh, think big didn't time. They? Oh, they did. They Isn't thought that interesting? interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean. I mean, I think that came from the father and his prejudice against his daughters. But But I think it is interesting that these women who paid close attention Mm -hmm. and wrote novels about how they were paying close attention allowed themselves these illusions. I guess that's love. Yeah, family. it was love. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they profoundly loved him. You you have read the whole canon. Though. I have. I mean, a lot of them were a long time ago. So yeah, yeah. Are you going to ask it like a very specific question? Because oh, I'm yeah. freaking out. No, it's a Bronte <laughs> quiz from now on. No, wait. no. Ugh. Do you have a favorite? Villette. Why? I don't oh. know. I there's a scene. Um, <laughs> Of drunkenness <laughs> in a public place that is hilarious and weird and like magnificent, and it's just the thing that I think of when I think of the Brontes. <laughs> <laughs> that is not the thing I think of I know. when I think I of the Brontes. Okay, I've got to go back. I read that a long, long time ago. I'm going to ask you the question that I asked our friends in the audience. Um, in the last 18 months, are there just a couple of books that are really gotten you through Absolutely. what what are they so i have this uh, re- uh reading group of three it's only three of us three um, friends three friends family? Yeah, yeah and we've attacked some really amazing books together we um we read life and fate by vasily grossman we read don quixote together um but the one that i wake up thinking about that often i go to sleep thinking about is roberta bolaño's 2666 which i read when it first came out but i was not ready for it until and this time i think it smashed my complacency complacency with the world right it made me complicit with the evil in in the world of the book in a way that i've never seen before by any writer it um it broke me 
Yeah. In a good way. Breaking is good in my world. sounds very No, breaking is good. Like, we like to break in my world. The cracks are the way the light gets in, right, Leonard Cohen? It it changed what? The the experience you were ha- that we've all been having in these last 18 months or something larger about the world? So I think I was fearing that literature didn't, um, was not up to the task of dealing with what we were going through, right? It felt so insignificant and um, almost like a toy in, in sort of thrown against a tsunami, right? It, it just felt not enough. And then I read this book that showed me just how the profound the moral stakes can be if you're doing it right Mm. in the way that Bolaño is and it is the most urgent thing so I think it possibly just gave me faith in art again in a way that I had um, not lost entirely but I was afraid I had lost you know it's interesting because it sounds like you were not reading for away from what we were living every day. You were reading deeper into it. Yeah, I, I, um, I love escapism, but I choose my escapism to be Netflix instead oh. of books. Books are uh, very serious to me. They are at the core of my life and existence. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, no, I'm not an escapist when it comes to books. I think it just, just as we close here, I think it'd be interesting for the audience to hear um, what, kind of how you compartmentalize your day and where reading fits into that. Could you say that? Yeah, sure. I, um, I work very, very hard to work against uh, my natural propensity. <laughs> so I wake up at five, I get coffee, and I go straight to work because I'm still asleep when, I'm, when I start writing. And I think a lot of times we get in our own way psychologically. And so I'm already working and I'm already writing. And often, and every single day, I will give myself at least an hour where I have to, to put words on a page. Sometimes it is um, great, and I'm having so much fun. I don't stop for eight hours. Sometimes it is horrific, and I have to write um, exactly 50 sentences, and some of those sentences are oh, the F word. Like, 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 here is where I write the F word again. Um, but at least I'm doing it. And then at the end of that horrible, difficult hour, which I had many of this year, I let myself read because reading is also writing, right? Reading with intention, with attention, with, with um, love, and uh, with a seeking nature is as important to writing as actually putting the words down, too. For our last excerpt. In the dimness of the doorway, Eleanor looked young, but now, as she steps near the fire, she shows the fine wrinkles under her powder and the hump of her back that has begun to grow. Her perfume so strong it is the avant-garde of her attack. And the world silences in Marie's ears. All she can hear is her thumping heart. She casts inside herself at a loss. If beauty has been stripped from the most beautiful, grace from the most gracious, does that mean God's favor has been stripped away as well? Without preamble, Eleanor says, Well, it has been decades, and hasn't Marie become a great mountain of a woman? She tells her to sit, if sitting doesn't break her chair, that is. No longer gallows bird is Marie, she who had once been frightfully bony. Oh, my, oh, my. Marie smiles. 
The queen looks at her. She says in a musing voice that, no, perhaps these decades Marie has become a sphinx. Marie says that they do eat well at the abbey, that this place is not the starving place it had been when she arrived as a girl that Eleanor threw threw away. These weeks when Marie watched those little baby oblates go blue and waste away of their hunger. They do eat well and plentifully, though, of course, none of the nuns are fat. Nearly all of the nuns have tremendous muscles. Perhaps the queen is simply just unused to female strength. Or perhaps it has been so long since Eleanor's ladies' army that she has forgotten. Perhaps any woman who is not so frail that she would shatter with a shout would seem fat at least to one so refined and courtly as the queen. It is as though the queen cannot hear her. She says in a musing voice that it's not as though Marie was ever small, is it? Her bones had simply been unfleshed all those years ago. Now she carries her own armor under her habits. Yes, she would say Marie has become a great old monoceros. Hide of iron, single vicious horn, or so she hears. Monoceros, yes, this is exact. Lauren... What a weird time to be on a book tour. <laughs> Thank you so very much oh, for coming to us. It's my pleasure. Thank here you. In St. Paul. Thank you. And thank you for being here. Yes. Wow. Thank you, brave people. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming out. I hope I see you at Kate D. Camillo uh, at the end of September. Thank you. Thank you.